The pandemic has forced educators to embrace flexibility and get creative. And now they're taking their lessons learned and rolling it into the next phase of post-pandemic education. Today, we're gonna to discuss how education has been reimagined, the innovative ways we can look forward to adapting and find out which skills we might need to unlearn. This is the Coffee with Graham podcast and I'm your host, Melissa Simmons. In each episode, we'll discuss different issues and hot topics in healthcare with ACCME President and CEO, Dr. Graham McMahon. We'll also have guest interviews with our continuing education colleagues. These are monthly conversations that address local and national healthcare priorities. Thank you for listening. Hi, Graham. How are you? Happy spring. Hey, Melissa. Lovely to join you again. It is a beautiful day here in Chicago and uh, really wonderful to be in a place where we're more optimistic about not just the coming weather, but the coming environment and the restoration of some normal life. Yeah, and with the nice weather, we've seen lots of people come out, and um, I understand that you've actually been volunteering with the City of Chicago Public Health Program. Yeah, I've been uh, part of the Medical Reserve Corps, so I've been out vaccinating uh, several weekends now over the last few weeks, uh, and it's been just fantastic to be part of that effort and see lots of smiley faces and people happily rolling up their arms, getting vaccines, and uh, taking selfies about it. It's been uh, great to be able to uh, contribute to the community that way. Yeah, it's such a great thing to see, so thanks for those efforts. Sure. So over the last year, how have we seen the needs of learners change? And in contrast to that, how have you seen educators adapt that approach? Yeah, what a transformative year it's been for education in general, as well as continuing education for the health professions. Uh, Gone are uh, meetings where we get together and learn from each other in the same room in most cases. Uh, And that's been a standard for decades, eons, uh, centuries in how clinicians uh, learn from and with each other. So now we've been reliant on virtual meetings with all of the wonderful things of virtual meetings and its technology, as well as all of the challenges. I mean, obviously there's a whole variety of benefits here. You don't have to travel. You can get speakers that you never had access to before because they don't have to travel either. Uh, You can create educational games and online interactive tools that facilitate uh, small groups and also active engagement in an online program. Uh, People have a lot more choice about where they spend their time and how much they spend their time in an individual activity. It's much easier to leave leave a Zoom conference after six minutes than it is to stand up and pass by all of those knees in an amphitheater to move, move away from something that isn't meeting your expectations. So I think what we've seen is learners feeling a lot more empowered to make very intentional choices. And they're looking for still though expertise and they're looking for uh, opportunities to grow and learn with colleagues who can teach them well. That sounds great. Being empowered to take control of your learning. So what are learners looking for now and what do they need? Well, in many ways, they're looking for the same things they've always looked for, but I think they're looking for it in a different way. And from an educational perspective, they're more open to using technologies and virtual meetings in ways that they haven't heretofore. Uh, I think in particular, clinicians are still motivated for mastery. They, they really want to be good at their jobs and they want to provide excellent care. So 
our job as educators is to feed into that. We're also remember in an environment where information is so ubiquitous that the role of education in providing information is much lower. Yes, it may be occasionally useful to share some breakthrough information with communities online or in, in conferences, but in most cases, uh, people can get the update from their scientific journal um, online the same day that it's released more quickly than you could create an educational experience to, to convey that information. So if you're not conveying information as your primary currency, what are you doing in education? And I think the key thing here is uh, meeting learners' needs for expertise. And maybe an example is, I, know I do a lot of diabetes care. I'm an endocrinologist. I, I see patients here in Chicago. And I may know a lot about uh, the capabilities of a new insulin pump, for example. But what I won't know is how my colleagues might guide me in implementing an insulin pump program in my practice or how to help my patients adjust that pump to achieve optimal glycemic control. So there's a very big difference between knowing what a pump can do versus how to use a pump effectively based on expertise and peer advice. So our role as educators is to create opportunities where experts can share insights and wisdom with learners rather than information. Um, so I think that's a key element of what learners are looking for. Similarly, learners are looking for real learning in that uh, they want reminders about what they learned. Uh, they want all longitudinal curricula to reinforce what they learned and, and grow progressively. And they want to learn towards an endpoint in mind. I, they want a target to focus on. You know, by the end of this program, I'll have learned what I need to know about approaching a patient with knee pain. And if I stick with this program every Friday for the next six weeks, I'll have learned everything experts can teach me about approaching a patient with knee pain. So that type of uh, curricular-based approach, longitudinal approach with a target in mind. And then finally, learners are looking for feedback. So they don't just want to absorb information. They want an opportunity to practice and get feedback, whether that's from a computer or from a colleague in a small group, or whether it's from an expert, either observing them or talking with them or interacting with them. They, they want some opportunity to participate and get feedback about how they're doing. Um, those are probably the key things that, that I see learners changing in terms of what they're looking for. So I'm hearing you say how to learn to implement those real world skills. Yeah, and then know if they're doing it right. So we know over the past year, we've been inundated with Zoom meetings and video chats. What other educational technology is especially compelling to you? Well, I think, uh, I think there's, there's two others that are, are pretty interesting. Uh, I suppose the first is educational technology that facilitates participation in live activities. So you see um, uh, software that's able to be deployed live that allows as basic things as polling, right? It's easy to put up a poll and say, you know, which cute cat picture do you prefer and have people, you know, pick cute cat pictures and you can see which cat your audience favorites. Uh, but you can take <laughs> the same polling feature to um, 
uh, to a multiple choice item for a complex case, for example. You can have open text polling to say, you know, which test would be your most important priority to order next. And people have to type in whatever they see. And then you make a word cloud of that type of uh, suggestion from the community as to whether they want the x-ray or the MRI or just some blood tests. Um, but these types of interactive approaches to leverage technology and live activities are uh, especially compelling and kind of coming forward into their own. I think the second uh, technologies are more uh, specifically about uh, using adaptive serving of materials. So giving, setting a curriculum, exploring knee pain, for example, uh, giving patients, uh, giving clinicians or learners some prompts about uh, try and find out how much they know about knee pain and then customizing the next sequence of things that they are shown or served or tested on to, to determine, are they at level four? Are they at level two? And then giving them information that is appropriate for both their level of expertise and where they are on their journey to achieve expertise. That type of adaptive technological serving is pretty widespread in K through 12 education um, and increasingly being deployed with uh, more sophisticated digital textbooks, for example, but now can also be deployed for the sophisticated health professionals we have the opportunity to work with. So some of the teaching methods that may have worked before the pandemic might not be as effective now. Can you talk about why it's important for clinicians and educators to have the ability to unlearn and rethink? Well, it's always been a huge hugely important element for professionals in the medical field because so much of our information is changing. Uh, what was true five years ago is probably not very true today. Not only is information changing, but new information is accruing at tremendous pace. That creates um, a potential that people will be practicing based on something they learned five years ago or last year that isn't appropriate for patient care or new opportunities for choices that the clinician may be unaware of are suddenly available uh, or not suddenly, but newly available that the clinician is not aware of. And in that case, the clinician might think she's practicing perfectly well because she knows the four medicines that are available for asthma care, but she's not aware of the new two ones that might be actually much more appropriate for this particular patient that she's seeing. So that ability to uh, stay current, unlearn what went before and realize that those four medicines she used to use, they're not nearly as effective as some of the newer ones. She should retire her use of those and move on. Um, all of that approach is essential to maintaining and updating the way we think, the knowledge that we have, the way we practice, and helps us avoid the concretized kind of complacency that can occur if you're not paying attention to the environment around you, what's changing, what's new, what's important for the well being of your patients. You don't know what you don't know. It's a huge problem for us educators, not just as humans, all of us don't know what we don't know, but as educators, we have to help our community of learners know or realize what they don't know. And the great thing is that if we tell people something that they didn't know before, uh, they generally really want to absorb it. They want to know what it is. And because they're such capable learners, they can do so super well. So it's a matter of 
creating that spark of curiosity based on identifying something somebody doesn't know that they feel like they should, and then the rest will make itself. And so how can those educators incorporate unlearning into continuing education? Yeah, well, there's a balance here, isn't there? Because part of what I just said earlier on is that people don't need information. They rather need skills. But that's only partially true. You know, I'm kind of revisiting what I said before, because in order to unlearn something, you have to realize there's a gap in your knowledge. And in order to realize there's a gap in your knowledge, you have to see what's different from what you knew before compared to what you think you know. Now, there's a challenge here because in many cases, let's say there are two new asthma medicines and there's four old asthma medicines and somebody's at the, at the a podium or online in a Zoom meeting talking about asthma care. Uh, a, a lot of clinicians will watch a presentation like that and keep recognizing the names of the four medicines that we're used to and be a bit comfortable in continuing to see medicines we're comfortable with being presented. And we'll almost turn our brains off from even recognizing that there's new medicines because we see signals that things we're comfortable with are still being talked about and our brains essentially go to sleep. So in order to help people unlearn what they should, we have to create a situation where they're exposed to what they don't know. And an example of that is, is to create an active learning scenario. So you put up a case vignette that says, Here's a patient with asthma. What should we treat her with? You list these six medicines and you watch and see if clinicians choose a medicine that is inappropriate and potentially old fashioned for this particular scenario. And when they do, you say, <laughs> not so fast. You should have chosen one of these other medicines because it's clearly more effective for this particular circumstance and why. And exposing the giving person's feedback like that exposes them to realizing what they don't know how their practice might have concretized or uh, remained unchanged, and then gives them an open-mindedness to be able to learn something new and grow. So we've talked about the individual, but how can innovative methods be used to improve group learning in team-based settings? Yeah, you're absolutely right that a lot of the way we think as educators is focused on individual learners. And increasingly in our digital and virtual environment, it's continuing to focus on individuals because it's Hollywood squares of faces looking at you, each of which is an individual. And yes, you want to bring the whole audience along with you, but we're naturally focused on, on the individual. The challenge is that that's not taking advantage of the expertise that's in the room, right? You know, I know that the best way I learn is by somebody looking at me in the eye, putting their hand on my shoulder and saying, hey, Graham, you got that wrong. Here's how to do it right. Let's try again, right? That's the most powerful feedback. Somebody I trust telling me what I'm doing wrong and giving me immediate feedback to how to improve it. That's really hard to duplicate that in continuing education for health professions, but you can get pretty close by leveraging small group breakouts in live meetings, for example, where you put groups of six, eight, four, 10, whatever clinicians in a room and you say, here's a scenario that's, that's leveled at the right standard for that group and saying to them, hey guys, how would you approach a scenario like this? Those of you who know can teach, those of you who don't know can ask. And there's a lot of positivity that emerges from a scenario like that if it's well constructed and uh, designed to be accessible. And then you follow up with the larger group to get the actual information. But report outs from small groups like that can be very helpful. 
Similarly, some recent um, meetings I've been at after every didactic session, let's say there's 25 minutes of a panel discussion about some update uh, in medicine, then the, the audience gets to divide into groups of 10 and they're asked, what do you think? Well, how is this going to change your behavior? How is this going to change how you practice? Give these homerooms or these small groups an opportunity to get to gel together, talk to each other, and create actionable next steps that don't need an expert in the room to apply them to the clinical practices or the research labs of the people who are participating. And you keep that room together so that there's 10 minutes of a breakout in your small group after every 30 minutes of didactics. That's very powerful. The group gets to gel, learn from and with each other, and is compelled to create some sort of actionable product like a report out that um, helps the experts and the organizers know what the key learning points were, while also uh, allowing the participants to participate in this reflection exercise that gets them to apply it to their own clinical environment to maximize the likelihood that they'll transition that information into action. Social media has emerged as a collaborative approach to knowledge and building communities of practice. And we know this because we participated in a tweet chat a couple months ago and we saw lots of real-time learning going on. So what other kinds of pedagogical trends do you see emerging? Well, social media is uh, an enemy and a friend, right? It's got... Uh, it, it's got tremendous strengths, but also real challenges to it. And uh, the key issue in using social media for continuing education is elevating the depth of their reaction or the comments from uh, an emotional reaction or uh, a trivial comment to actual insights. That's really hard with uh, character limited sentences or uh, short uh, stimulus stimuli that might be shared. Uh, a good example though of what you can do is a tweet chat where you present a scenario like we were on one about vaccine hesitancy uh, and we saw that people had terrific and maybe even remarkable ideas about overcoming vaccine hesitancy, both from their own experience and leveraging the conversation that was occurring on social media to talk about how we address issues of vaccine hesitancies in our community. And leveraging that kind of more global input to solve a current problem is a fantastic way to leverage both educational technology and social media. And it's participatory, it derives wisdom and insight, and it's not just about information sharing and emotional reactions like, hey, I like this or I don't like it. That doesn't move us along very far, but sharing and collaborating information and creating uh, thematic summaries of what some panelists might be hearing from themes coming from a variety of comments, that type of exercise can be quite powerful. So as we kind of wrap up um, our conversation here, what do you think post-pandemic education will look like? Well, that's a toughie, <laughs> Melissa, because it's such a, a, a rapidly changing environment for us all. I mean, we've at ACCME, we have our annual meeting. In fact, it's coming up in, in April, as you well know. And uh, we're, we've had to transition very quickly last year to an all virtual meeting 
and our meeting this year is also all virtual. So we've had to practice what we preach and we always try to lead by example in the way in which we deploy our educational activities. So I think post-pandemic education is going to be a lot of experimentation and a lot of efforts to try new things that might, some of which are going to stick. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, getting it wrong, but getting it wrong dramatically and quickly, getting, learning the lesson and moving on. And the same is going to be true for education in the post-pandemic era. To some degree, this is a terrific thing in that the world of continuing education has needed us to evolve from the sage on the stage for decades. Uh, and now maybe we have that final impetus to push people off of narrated PowerPoint slide sets or you know, live streaming um, a typical sage on the stage. And maybe you'll move to more dynamic and powerful interactive active learning environments that are longitudinal and that leverage adult learning with repetition and reminders and uh, participatory exercises with feedback. I mean, all of those things would be fantastic. But I think the bottom line is that we're very quickly moving away from requiring people to be present at meetings for them to engage in them you're almost certainly gonna have at least blended learning activities in the future. And you're probably gonna have not kind of fee for service models of education where you pay a fee and get access to a meeting, but instead probably moving towards subscription models of education where you join an organization or you designate a place as an educational home. And then you have access to a range of services from that organization that consolidates around a curriculum that supports you and the type of practice that you have uh, with goals uh, accordingly. So I think, I think it'll be a very different world. Uh, it'll take a while to get there. We'll have to experiment a lot to find the right route and it'll be a different uh, result of the experiment for almost everybody. And some of the uh, learning methods that you just touch on, longitudinal learning, um, polls, breakout rooms, how we transitioned the annual meeting to apply the principles that we talked about today. Yeah, several of the principles are applied in, in our meeting. Uh, first of all, moving up into the meeting, we have a variety of work groups uh, where collaborative groups uh, are working to uh, find solutions to common problems in continuing education. And they'll be reporting out at the meeting and sharing their what they learned through those collaborative facilitated groups in the weeks coming up to the meeting. At the meeting itself, we have a whole variety of breakout approaches, but maybe the most notable is our continued use of the homeroom principle, where a consistent group of people meets um, after the day's uh, educational program to reflect on its meaning and application for them and they get to know each other, convene together and learn from each other about what the outcomes of the educational initiative have been for them. And then thirdly, we of course have a variety of interactive approaches in our meeting itself, not just uh, using polls and chats and breakout rooms, uh, but also educational technology implemented throughout to make it a more stimulating and interactive experience because we think that stimulates active learning and participation. And then finally, it's a matter of creating a variety of modules that people can choose from. So that people can choose an educational journey that meets their needs in the best way possible and allow people to move in and out of sessions uh, as needed. That choice 
that ability to create customized and active learning experiences, the ability to create a community and the ability to create actionable objectives that people are moving towards together are all parts of how we've designed our meeting to try and make a difference, make an impact and contribute to the health and development of the CE community. Well, this is all very exciting and something to definitely look forward to. Registration for our annual meeting 2021 is still open, so make sure you register today. Uh, thank you, Graham, so much, as always, for your insight and your words of wisdom. And give, definitely give us something to look forward to. Uh, likewise, Melissa. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Look forward to our next interview as well. And look forward to working with you uh, on creating a fantastic annual meeting coming up in the next few weeks. Thanks. If you enjoyed this conversation, we're always looking to extend the discussion on CME. Feel free to reach out with topics you'd like us to cover or let us know how you're addressing these issues in your organization. Thank you for listening and catch us on the next episode of Coffee with Graham. Thank you.